I guess because of the transition we've been going through, uh, Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, has been coming to mind lately. The first line of which is, life is difficult. Anybody got a problem with that? Anyone refute that? Okay. All right. Life is difficult. But the very next sentence is, but the moment that you accept that life is difficult, it's no longer difficult. You know? And isn't that really what we're looking for? It's a way to approach life. It's a way to go through life. Or it doesn't hurt, or at least doesn't hurt as much. To have the freedom to be able to go through life without the pain of the fear, without the pain of the unknown. It seems to me that's a huge part of our spiritual journey. Jesus said that the goal of spirituality, the goal of his way, was freedom. To know the truth that would make you free. And so, I guess what I wanted to talk about this morning is exactly that. You know, what is it that we can do that will transform our lives? They're going to be just as difficult as they always were from the outside in. But from the inside out, we would be able to change the way that we view things, the attitude with which we experience things, and the experience we have itself. Because what happens when we really go through something difficult, something traumatic? It becomes really hard for us to be able to see meaning anymore in life, see meaning anymore in the actual experiences and the events and the circumstances. We start asking, why? Why, God? You know, why is this happening to me? It kind of reminds me, remember Tevya in The Fiddler on the Roof? He says, I know, I know, we are your chosen people. But just once in a while, Lord, couldn't you choose someone else? You know? Kind of like that, kind of like Tevye. You know, we understand, we look around at others and we imagine that they're having experiences that are different from ours. We imagine that they have circumstances that make their lives better or easier or somehow different. That maybe they even they have some kind of unfair advantage. You know, that there's more meaning in their lives because of their circumstances than ours. That there's some sort of accident of birth, you know, where you're born, when you're born, how you're born, to whom you're born, that is going to change the way that you process, going to change your experience, going to change the sense of meaning. And we're all looking for meaning. But these accidents of birth are really interesting to me. And do they make a difference? I love period movies. Do you like to watch period movies? You know, movies from 100 years ago or different time periods, 19th century, whatever. And I'm always wondering, you know, did they capture it? Did they capture the way it looks? Did they capture the right setting? Did they capture this or that? And then I tried to imagine, what would life have actually been a hundred years ago? And would it have changed anything? I mean, certainly some things in life would have been much harder a hundred years ago, but would it also have been simpler? Would it have changed the, the, the calculus somehow? Were these things that really come down to basic purpose as a human being might be clearer, might be easier? What I wanted to do was just kind of take that little thought experiment with you. What was life like 100 years ago in the United States? Do you ever think about that? Or is it just the history geek over here that thinks about such things? You know, I don't know. I love this stuff. Did you know that 100 years ago, say 1904 to 1915, the average life expectancy in the United States was 47 years? 47 years. Half of the people lived on farms. You know, back in the 19th century, almost all did. But after the Industrial Revolution, the other half had migrated to the cities, the big cities, and now are working in factories and so on and so forth. 
working at manufacturing jobs primarily that were 30 times more lethal than any jobs today. The fatality rate was 30 times what it is in manufacturing in the United States now. Get this, the average weight in the United States was 22 cents an hour. You want to talk about minimum wage? The average worker made between $200 and $400 a year. It just seems amazing. 20% of adults couldn't read or write, and only 6% graduated from high school. Sugar costs four cents a pound. What is it now? I have no idea. Eggs cost 14 cents a dozen. Coffee, 15 cents a pound. And yet, because of the low wages, people paid twice as much of their annual income for food as we do today. And they paid four times as much of their annual income on clothing than we do today because of the lack of manufacturing, because of the lack of international trade, and so on and so forth. Families lived in crowded homes, often three generations living together. And more than 95% of all births in the United States took place at home. Imagine that. 95. And so because of that, because of unsupervised births and because of, of poor living conditions, the infant mortality rate was 17 times higher than it is. A lot of kids died in the first year. And so families tended to have a lot more children to work the farm, to go into the family business, or to go to work and just help support the family. There was no running water in most of the homes 100 years ago. It wasn't until the 1920s that it started coming to the city, and between 1930 and 1950 that rural towns and, and towns outside of the major urban areas had any running water. No electricity either. Only In 1925, only half the homes in the U.S. had electricity. So they were still running on candle and still running on gas lights. Okay, ladies, are you ready for this? Most women only wash their hair once a month. And they use borax or egg yolks for shampoo. <laughs> Only 14% of the homes in the U.S. had a bathtub. Only 8% had a phone. A three-minute call from Denver to New York cost $11. It was still a, a novelty, a rarity. There were almost no stoves, no refrigerators, no radios, no phonographs. Of course, no vacuum cleaners, no TV. TV hadn't even come on the market yet. And many homes also had no electricity. There was no movies. There's no movies. The movie industry hadn't started yet. All the entertainment was live stage actors, the phonograph, and player pianos. That was the extent of the entertainment. And each other, of course. Only 8,000 cars. There were only 8,000 cars in the entire United States and only 144 miles of paved roads. And the max speed limit through most towns, 10 miles an hour. <laughs> People didn't drive. They, rode, they walked on foot. They rode horses. Or if they were in the major cities like New York, they rode trolleys. In fact, here's a little tidbit you can get for free. You know why the Los Angeles Dodgers are called the Los Angeles Dodgers? Because they, first, what's that? Hey, you're good. Ah, yeah, give that guy a gold star. Back in the late, eight, <laughs> back in the late 18, in the 1890s, the, the Brooklyn Dodgers were then called the Brooklyn Grays. And uh, he's so proud of himself. <laughs> They were called the Brooklyn Grays, but they were nicknamed in 1895 the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers because that's what their fans had to do to get to the game. Dodging trolleys and the crisscrossing 
chaos of the tracks all through the New York streets was an actual acrobatic art. And then the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers was shortened to the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then in the 1950s they moved to Los Angeles. You get that for free. It has nothing to do with anything, but it's cool. Crossword puzzles, canned beer, iced tea hadn't been invented. There was no Mother's Day or Father's Day. Get this, there were only about 230 reported murders in the entire United States. Now, given that our population today is four times what it was 100 years ago, that's still 17 times, I'm sorry, 74 times more murders. In 2016, there were 17,000 reported murders in the United States. And finally, marijuana, heroin, and morphine were all available over-the-counter at drugstores. And one pharmacist actually wrote, heroin clears the complexion, gives buoyancy to the mind, regulates the stomach and bowels, and is, in fact, a perfect guardian of health. (laughs) Famous last words, huh? You know, most people worked from sunup to sundown. That was their lives in uh, fields or in factories or in offices. These are jobs without real apparent meaning. And you're just tilling the soil. You're doing something transactional. As the assembly line started, you were just doing one widget all day long. It defied meaning. It was stultifying type of work. There were no appliances. So think about trying to do your chores at home with no appliances, no dishwasher, no clothes washer, no refrigerator, no vacuum cleaner, You had to make every meal from scratch. You didn't have a stove. You're cooking over an open fire. Think about how long that would take. The the women who mostly stayed at home were working all day just to get the meals and get the things done that they needed to do. And then as soon as the sun went down, you're in a dark house and you lit a candle in one room, knowing you had to get up early the next day with no real entertainment to speak of. You could read a book. You could talk to each other. And so you basically went to bed and you got up with the sun and started all over again. That's a picture of life for the rank and file that is so vastly different than we, maybe we think about it. And yet, what do things look like today? Today people have the ability to pick more meaningful work. They can pick their professions much more than, than we could. You can go to school and you can prepare for these things. And we certainly have more leisure time because all of the technology has allowed us to do our chores quicker so we can finish and we can have more leisure time. And now we've got all these entertainment choices as well. And yet, do we have more sense of a meaning in life today than 100 years ago? We certainly got a heck of a lot more murders. We got a heck of a lot more suicides. We got a lot more drug use, right? And yet we have less church attendance we have seemed to have less hope at the same time. And our youngest generations really are expressing the lack of hope that they have in their future as they see the direction that the, the world seems to be going. Not only that, think about this. Churches in the third world seem to be thriving in a way that the churches in the first world don't. We're seeing them in terms of numbers, in terms of their fervency. We see them just bursting at the seams, and yet... What's going on here? What is it that they do differently? Is it that they're more spiritual? Is it that God loves them more? Well, of course not. But these accidents of birth can do one thing. They can, under certain circumstances, strip away the distractions that obscure what is really true, really important in life. 
And when the noise floor goes down, when we can get down to that place, we can see things more clearly. And perhaps that's what's going on in the third world. Perhaps that was what was going on in other times of life when technology wasn't there to assist and life was maybe physically more difficult, and yet they still found a way to the spiritual meaning. Every true spiritual journey that we take begins with a wounding. It begins with a felt need for something that we need to start looking inward. When do you reach out? When do you pray? Isn't it when there is something difficult going on in your life? And maybe when things start to get better, then that sort of drifts off and the the discipline that you had for a while is not so much as it was before. We attach good and bad labels to circumstances based on the amount of pain that we feel from them. And yet it seems like there's something else going on here because meaning can't be in the circumstances themselves. It has to be coming from someplace else. I love this quote by Meister Eckhart. It's in your handouts if you want to take a look. He writes, Some people prefer solitude. They say their peace of mind depends on this. Others would be better off in church. If you do well, you do well wherever you are. If you fail, you fail wherever you are. Your surroundings don't matter. Now, he's talking about this in terms of a a religious or a spiritual experience. But I think the principle holds. So if our surrounding circumstances don't matter, if meaning is not there in the circumstances, in the accidents of birth, then where is it? Where can we find real meaning? Let me ask you this. What was the worst thing that has ever happened to you in your life? Don't answer. Just bring it to mind. What was the worst thing that ever happened to you? Some kind of meaningless loss, possibly the loss of a person in your life, a loved one, some kind of illness or cataclysmic event, whatever it was, what is that worst thing? Now, if some time has passed since that event, since that occurrence, have you felt that you've moved at all? from where you were before to where you are now? Do you feel that there's been any growth from then until now? Have any opportunities opened to you because of what you have gone through, because of what you've experienced? What could that worst thing be? The death of a child? That, as I just imagined, seems to me to be the worst thing that could happen. Most marriages don't survive the death of at least a small child. And I'm going to out Vernon a little bit here, but it's okay because he has uh, he has sort of outed himself. Vernon, our bass player, lost his daughter eight years ago to an Opana overdose. And uh, that was probably why I met Vernon in the first place, or how I met Vernon in the first place. When his daughter Vanessa died, who was a vibrant part of our community here, she was part of a three musketeer group of girls, and, and just uh, she just lit up our rooms. But when she died and we were putting together memorial services, I met Vernon for the first time. And uh, subsequent to that, we started playing together here. And it's been a few years since he just recently came back. But the death of his daughter flipped a switch. And and we're going to get him up here to tell you, have him tell you his story at some point, because it's remarkable. 
But Vernon was able to move into a place where he saw a need. The reason for his daughter's death was a glitch in the legal system. He was instrumental in getting a Good Samaritan law passed in Sacramento. He testified to Senate subcommittees about what was going on in terms of overdosing and, and, and the, the lack of, of support from the legal system and from the institutions in our society. And he made a real difference there. He's been speaking and, and connecting at the, at the recovery level. But I'll tell you what, I haven't really seen Vernon in the last four years or so because he moved back to Ohio and just recently came back last year. And as we started playing with him, I am seeing such a different man here. He's calmer, he's quieter, he's more centered, and yet he retains his crazy sense of humor and, of course, his ability to just blow the socks off that instrument. But there's a change in him. And he would have to tell you how much is a result of this. But all of those experiences and that one jarring, traumatic loss, I can't help, it can't help but change you in a certain way. And the good that he's been able to do, the credibility that he had because of the experience that he went through, and you, can't, you can't buy that. I was just talking a couple of weeks ago to someone who lost her daughter just over a year ago. And she's still going through a lot of the difficulties right now. And we had a talk, and we both agreed, and she understood that as she goes through the difficulty, as she goes through the grief and the pain, on the other side of that is going to be her ability to help people in a way that she never could before. It's going to be her ability to be able to have their permission to speak into their lives in a way that she never could before. There's something about these difficulties that transforms us, and it's not till later on that we see meaning or we see any purpose. You know, if it's not the death of a child, is it the death of a brother? Is it the death of a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is it the death of a, of a really close friend? Two years ago, January, you know, we all lost our good friend Lenny, who died by his own hand. It was just traumatic. It was so difficult for us. And yet, because of that, I met his whole family as, I was, as we were um, putting together a memorial service. And his sister now is a part of our community here. And she drives up from Carlsbad to be here with us. His brother, who lives in San Francisco, has become a really close friend of mine. And all sorts of connections and things have taken place even because of a traumatic event like that. And it's like you see only as it unfolds, as you move through the stages of grief, how all this works together to produce something that you never could have imagined. Maybe wouldn't have been able to be produced any other way. Brings people together that would never have met. We can't outthink this. All we can do is live through it. But if we do live through it, If we keep breathing, something happens. Now, this is just anecdotal evidence, right? These are just stories. But is there a principle here that we can count on? Is there a principle here in terms of where we look for meaning and how we look at meaning and circumstances that can change our experience of life? And I think Paul has nailed it here. Let's take a look at Romans 8, one of the thorniest chapters in the New Testament, right? Romans 8, dense stuff. But look at verse 28. Famous verse, right? 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All right, so there's some stipulations there, right? How do we parse that? How do we know what's going on? The first thing we have to do is go to context. So let's back up to verse 24 and get a running start at what's going on here. At Romans 8.24, For in hope we have been saved. Okay, what's the hope dealing with? In chapters 7 and 8, Paul is running through the discrepancies between life as it is experienced, messy, painful life as it's experienced, and the as-yet-unrealized love of God. Or looked at another way, he's pointing out the difference between the people that we really are and the way we're acting right now, and the people that we wish to be, want to be, desire to be. There still is is an as-yet-unrealized quality to the promise of God even as we're living it day by day. That's the hope, see? It's not hope that saves in the theological sense, but it's in hope, as we continue to live as if that hope is real, that we are saved, accepted, connected. See how this is working? For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, for that which is still unrealized, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's beautiful the way he's laid this out. Now let's take a look at it in the message version and see if that helps us to solidify some of these concepts because Paul is really dense in his writing and translated word for word the way the NASB, that's what's up there and here, New American Standard, it's still a little stilted. But look at the way that Eugene Peterson translates that. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. Now let's go back to the NASB version and pick right up at verse 28, right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what does that called according to his purpose mean? We just read it in the previous verses, right? Those who love God and are called according to purpose, his purpose are those who love God and live that love in hope, even as it appears to be as yet unrealized in the circumstances of their lives. That's what called 
according to his purpose is. God's purpose is the love in the connection. Those who love God and are living that love in the hope are the ones for whom everything is going to work together to produce that meaning, to produce that connection, to produce something brand new. Now we get to verse 29, and all heck is going to start to break loose, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? All right. What it sounds like he's saying is that God, in advance, picked out the ones that he was going to call and save in a predestined sort of way, and everybody else is just sort of chopped liver. Now, do you think that could possibly be what's going on here? So we need to, to take this back into the original language, into the original context, and do some more parsing here to see if we can figure out First of all, right at verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Who are those? See, context is everything. Those refer back to the previous verse. Those are those who love God and are living that love in hope every single day of their lives regardless of circumstances. Those God foreknew. Now, to know in a Hebrew context, yada, means not to know intellectually, It means to know with intimate familiarity, to have experienced a relationship with. It means to be one with. That's the definition of love. Really, a better way to translate this is not who God foreknew, but that God loved first. Those who are loving God and are living this way, God loved first. This is our signature verse from 1 John 4.19, we love because God loved us first. Paul is echoing that here. doesn't sound like that when we read it directly translated into English, but if you get down into it, that's really what's going on. Those who love God, God loved first. And the rest of this now, this predestined, which means to decree, to determine, From the beginning of time, this has nothing to do with God choosing who will be accepted and who won't be accepted. What's predestined is what's going to happen to those who love God and live that love according to his purpose. It's like being set on an inevitable track. If you love God, if you are living that love in your life day to day, regardless of what's going on around you, then as night follows day, you are going to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, which means you're being more and more conformed to the image of the Father because Jesus and the Father are one. Now, I took the audacity here to paraphrase this myself. So if you take a look in the middle there, verse 29, how can we translate that? How can we paraphrase it? How about this? For those who love God and are living that love in hope, God loved first, knowing they are set on an inevitable track to himself. Now let's read what Eugene Peterson says and see if we can lock this down. Starting at verse 28 in the message. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was going to do. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. 
He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So what do you think? With God on our side, like this, how can we lose? Circumstances so often derail us. Circumstances so often take the meaning that we have so carefully crafted out of life. Circumstances send us into despair. But if we can start to get our hearts wrapped around what Paul is saying here, that as long as we keep breathing through the difficulties, through the traumas, as long as we keep living as if the hope is there, as if the promise is true, then as night follows day, all things are going to work together for good. It can't go any other way. No matter how far it may be before we can actually see it, if we keep breathing through it, it is a promise that we can take to the bank. And it is the explanation why Paul could write then in Philippians 4, as he was sitting in prison waiting to be executed, that I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. How does that happen? How do you do that? Can you just grunt it out and will yourself to be happy and content in all your circumstances? No. But what you can do is keep breathing. Keep choosing to live as if these things are true. And you won't see where it comes from, but you'll suddenly realize your heart rate has dropped. You'll suddenly realize your blood pressure is down. And you will suddenly realize that you can breathe and smile and be open and vulnerable again to whoever's in your path. And you will find that there are new people in your path, people that weren't there before. And you will find that you have a gravitas and you have a store of wisdom to be able to share in a way that you never had before. I wanted to read a letter that I got a few years ago, and I just ran across it again, and it just struck me all over again. It is one of the most uh, insightful and beautiful little bits. This is a woman who found us on the Internet, and we started becoming pen pals, email pals. And uh, she lives in Tucson, I believe, or Phoenix. And I knew that she was going through a lot at the time that we were corresponding. And I knew that she had an autistic daughter, which was really creating a lot of chaos in the house, as you can imagine, right? But she wrote this at one point. She says, I guess part of my journey is being a parent to a child whose development is atypical. Going to three hours of church each week has been a struggle. Halo was a very fussy baby. Don't you love that she named her Halo? I love that. Halo was a very fussy baby and a very busy toddler. And she still can't follow the abstract words that are being taught in church. It really made me realize from a child development standpoint that it is not an appropriate way to teach. 
In these early years, teaching should be more organic and hands-on and stimulating. This is especially true for my little one. This is an important part of my journey because instead of just accepting the things I hear at church, I am forced to really think about them. My daughter has talents that outweigh her weaknesses. While she is oblivious to some things, she is so perceptive to others. We are all trapped inside a box in how we see the world, but her box is very different from mine. When I get on her level and connect with her, I can see outside my box, and it's magical. I attached for you the pages to a book I made for her about how waiting to be and becoming her mom has changed the way I see things. It talks about when I was praying because I wanted children. I looked up and I saw a girl twirling in my empty hallway. This brought a lot of comfort as I waited for her to come to earth. A few years later, when I was watching her trapped in her world and spinning in circles to help regulate herself, that image came to my mind. I was filled with an understanding that this was not that something went wrong, but she was sent to earth exactly how God intended to send her. He didn't just see past her limitations, but he blessed her with them to enable her to be amazing in ways that others may not understand. I feel like Galileo must have felt when he had the ability to see how the planets revolved around the sun. People thought it threatened the theology of Christianity, but to him it must have only glorified God more. It deepened the grand complexity of his creations. It hurt Galileo to think that the Catholic Church saw him as an enemy. He didn't just have the vision to see the workings of the solar system. He had the vision to see God's hand in it all. Oh, my. The greatest theologians that we have couldn't do any better than this. I'm convinced. How in the world does a woman come up with something like this? Because she has gone through what she's gone through. And she kept breathing. And she kept living in the hope of a love that was now present to her in the form of an autistic daughter. Do you see the shape of how this works? Just in her letter, the living for something as yet unrealized, the praying in hope for that thing to be manifested, the child not seen, not yet realized, and then a vision that brings more hope and a sense of meaning even in the waiting to see that girl spinning in the hallway. And then the child is born, and there's all the joy associated with that. And then the autism presents, and there's all the crushing blow that that brings along with it. And then there is the little girl spinning in the room, trying to regulate herself. And then all the dots start to connect in a way that couldn't have happened any other way. And she begins to see the meaning in a way that she never saw before. She can now see life in a way that she could never see before. And she can transmit and convey this to me and now to you in a way that can change the way you see things. If you can start to process what you've been through that has been difficult, your difficult circumstances. This meaning that we're looking for is not in our circumstances. It's not the accidents of birth that give us meaning. 
It's the breathing and living through that allow us to see the meaning that was always there, but we were missing. When it comes right down to it, meaning isn't so much what you take out of life. Meaning is what you put in to the love of the relationships all around you, the people around you, and your Father in heaven. It's what we put in that is going to change everything about the way that we live our circumstances. Jesus and Paul are saying, start there. Start there. Keep breathing. Keep loving. Keep living as if this hope is real. And in ways that you never expected or could see coming, it will be. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you again for the people in my life that have modeled things that still take my breath away. Thank you for people who love you and are called according to your purpose so we can see what it looks like and we can scuttle afterwards. Thank you for showing all of this. Thank you for loving first so that we can love after. Thank you for everything that you've given us that helps us to see what we need to see. Help us to deal with the difficult circumstances in our lives and the traumas in our lives, the grief, in a way that allows us to keep breathing and keep living, to lean on those who are close to us as appropriate as we need to and to allow others to lean on us as appropriate as they need to and together to continue to move through life in a way that affirms everything that you're trying to get across to us. Thank you for being for us, Father, so that no one can be against us. Thank you for taking us through everything by being the presence and the escape and the way through. We are so grateful. And thank you for loving us first so that we could love after. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.